You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas from BleacherReport.com. And joining me, as always, from MMA Junkie and USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, how you doing this week? I'm doing okay. Are you uh, experiencing any kind of hangover from the double whammy of the weekend of having your daughter's third birthday party on Saturday? That's right. Afternoon, and then having the UFC on Sunday evening. I don't even know what the hell day it is anymore, to tell you the You don't truth. know which way is up? No. You're, you're, you're head over heels? You're That's underwater? Right. You know, it, it was a real contrast, as you know, having attended that birthday party, uh, which, at my daughter's insistence, had an awful lot of princess bullshit going on. Yes. And then you go from that right to a UFC fight night from Boston. And, uh, you know, you got yourself kind of a diverse weekend as far as yeah. entertainment Well, and goes. at the UFC, a lot of different kind of princess bullshit going sure. on. Sure. I you know, but I will that. say this in favor of your daughter's birthday party, a lot less purple and pink cake at the UFC. There you go. Which... My daughter's still talking about. <laughs> That's good. I'm so, glad to hear that. Uh, what are we doing for, uh, for sponsors this week, Chad? We don't have a sponsor this week. That is... So what you're telling me is I'm doing this one for free? We're just hemorrhaging money over here. God damn it. So, perspective, co-main event, podcast sponsors out there who are listening, who previously have probably been like, Oh, God, if we could just get in with the co-main event podcast. Yeah. But they're just... They're brimming with sponsors. Yeah. This could be their, their big opportunity. The door has swung wide open, you Get might say. in on the ground floor of a thing uh, that is probably going to go straight through the roof, business-wise. Has, uh, has Reebok returned any of our calls? No, it's, I just keep leaving them messages. Okay. Should yeah. we just do like a read, for re- like, like an ad read for Reebok anyway, and, just, and then invoice them and hope they get confused? Just <laughs> I mean, I, we'd have as good a chance as almost anyone. All right. They could dip into that pool of money that may or may not exist to uh, pay people out and, and send some of that our way. Reebok. It could be worse. The flexibility of the Coman event podcast is one of its biggest attributes. Thank you, Chad Dundas. Well, we have three rounds, as usual, this week in the Coman event podcast. In round number one, I don't know if Dominic Cruz versus TJ Dillashaw will end up being among the best fights of the year. But I bet it'll be among the best fights of the year for everybody to air their annoying post-fight theories about judging and scoring criteria and who won which round and blah, 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 blah. And in round number two, so, Eddie Alvarez, you want to be a wrestler? Maybe next time you wrestle with the Nermi. Da? That ain't bad. And in round number three, how about a sloth rule? For eye pokes, meaning if one dude gets poked in the eye during a fight and ends up looking like sloth from the Goonies, the other motherfucker doesn't get to win. I don't know, man. I'm just spitballing. All that plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff. But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail comes to us from Ronald McDonald. Come on we, now. Which, given the subject matter of this listener mail... We can either hope is his actual name or could turn out to be somewhat ironic. Uh, you know what I'd do if my actual name was Ronald McDonald? Change it? Go by Ronnie. Ronnie? Ronnie McDonald? Yeah. Or what, like, what about like R. James McDonald? 
You can't tell me well, that's not bad. You can't tell me that a guy named Ronnie McDonald doesn't drive, you know, an old Camaro and uh, could maybe hook you up with a, a loan if you're willing to to take some risks. What's the crazy thing about a cool car? It makes a cool guy that much cooler. Isn't that what the... There you go. From Ronald McDonald, he writes, As journalists, what do you think about Kenny Florian's retort that the only person who should be upset at his partially plagiarized article is Lee Wiley? In other words, do we as readers have no right to be angry at reading an article slash essay slash book, etc., and finding out after the fact that portions of said writing were plagiarized? Should we entirely leave it to the victims of plagiarism to worry about such infractions themselves? When faced with the issues going forward, are we to collectively discard all notions of authentic writing, legitimacy, intellectual property, and professionalism so as to treat them as someone else's problem? What in the actual fuck? That's in all caps. Whoa, Ronnie. How is this not a fireable offense for an analyst? Rhetorical questions aside, what say ye? Uh, so that is a smart-ass email from someone whose name is Ronald McDonald. <laughs> okay. So that I don't think this is from the McDonald's clown. All right. The lovable... You're saying you don't think that that clown is very smart? Well, I mean, I don't. I guess we've never heard the man Throwing speak. Throwing shade. So uh, we don't know, but I'm impressed with Ronnie McDonald's. This also doesn't sound like a dude who would pull up in a Camaro and flip a Newport out the window. <laughs> well, it sounds Ronald McDonald. This particular Ronald McDonald sounds like a learned man. Like maybe a guy pulling up in a town car, uh, dropping a, a a cigar butt out the window. Exactly. So uh, to, for people who don't have context, Ben, why don't you explain what's going on with? Uh, Fox analyst and former UFC lightweight and featherweight, Kenny Florian. So what had happened was Kenny Florian wrote a pre-fight breakdown of Cruz versus Dillashaw. And in that pre-fight breakdown, he took word for word, I believe, two whole sentences about a, the, a fighting style that Cruz employs that he had taken from a video breakdown of 1940s boxing great Willie Pep uh, that Lee Wiley, a boxing analyst, had done. And that's what I think what kind of makes it weird, for one thing, uh, is it's he takes it from somebody else's stuff and, and not like kind of an obscure source and then puts it in his pre-write breakdown, no indication that it was not his words, not his, his analysis or anything. Um, and then initially, when kind of confronted with this uh, accusation that he had plagiarized this, one of his initial responses was that the only person who should be upset, and rightfully so he said, was Lee Wiley himself, which that part of the, that does not hold water. That's like saying that the only people who should be upset about Millie Vanilli are the two guys who actually sang the songs that they lip sync to. That is not how that works. Other people get to be upset about something like that. Yeah. Uh, the, I think you just, you mentioned this a little bit, but the strangest part of all of this is the notion, unless uh, Kenny Florian as Dominic Cruz taunted after his fight this weekend against TJ Dillashaw, really did like copy and paste this from a different source, we're left to assume, since he plagiar allegedly plagiarized a video, that Kenny Florian like transcribed this sentence? No, no the video, if you've seen the video, uh, the way it does is it shows footage of Willie Pep and then it has text in the video, but it's still Okay, not, but like, he would still have to transcribe that, right? right? He would still have to sit there and type that into his computer, right. which... At least I didn't see any way where it was in text that he could just copy and paste it. If that's the case, that's more difficult than just writing your own sentence. That's the point I made in a Trading Shots column with Danny Downs that we did today on this very issue, where it seems like that kind of instance where the thief had to do so much work to steal that he might as well have just gotten a job. Like you were actually doing research, and 
from kind of an obscure but you know good source to gain information about this. Your only problem is in passing off that analysis for one thing, word for word from the other guy, and not giving him any credit. And here's where I think is the, the tricky thing about this, is the explanations kind of differed as the story went on. Like, at right. first it seemed like maybe they were hoping won't be a big deal. And then Deadspin got onto it, bigger media outlets got onto it, and it seemed like, okay, maybe not going to go away, and that's when they, they suspended him. And one of the first editor's notes that they attached to that story after people started to notice this was referring to it as an oversight that they bar that Kenny Florian borrowed from this analysis and did not give him credit, and that's where I have to wonder about that part because you and I have both written enough internet articles and you know how citing sources and stuff in internet articles works. You can understand how some stuff where you maybe you meant to put a link in there and that didn't end up in there. Maybe somebody right. in the editing process took it out. That's happened. That has happened to me before. Right. Or like you have a copious amount of notes. If you have like pages of pages of notes that you've taken from various different sources, and sometimes you go to it. And maybe this is just like a function of my own brain and faulty memory. You look at what you've written down and you don't remember, is that the wording of the person that I took these notes from? Or did I change it when I took these notes? Yeah. Right? That's, sure. So then you gotta basically got to go look it up again if you still have the, the source. Yeah, or sometimes when you're collecting sources and you're thinking, okay, I'm going to link back to this person, this person, and you, you might get confused when you go from writing it down yourself to like putting it online and you re- might not remember okay what was I going to go back and add that can kind of that could somewhat happen although then you would think that there would be a whole lot of links throughout the story and a whole right. lot of referring back to other sources and there's not there's not a, there's no quotation marks there's not like the setup of a quote it's a thing that this guy wrote about Willie Pep that you're just applying to Dominic Cruz and there would have to be some other kind of indicator in the the writing that you were setting it up to say, hey, what this guy wrote about Willie Pep is also true about Dominic Cruz. And there's none of that. Yeah. Uh, I think to refer back to your first point, this does seem like a situation where potentially the explanation was worse than the crime. Right. Or the cover-up was worse than the crime, although not really a cover-up. Uh, I think that it's probably the best. Was the, it was the defensible move here for Kenny Florian to get suspended. It would have been a defensible move, although quite harsh, for Kenny Florian to get fired. Like you couldn't really say anything about it had that happened. Uh, but I think you know, getting a suspension is certainly justified. I don't condone plagiarism, obviously. Uh, but am I being a little bit too Pollyanna-ish, maybe, or cutting Kenny Florian too much slack to say? Uh, I'm not fully going to break out the pitchforks on Kenny Florian here. No, like he's been doing so. this for a long time. We don't really have any indication that that you know allegations like this have been brought against him from before. It could very well be kind of an honest mistake. I don't know. Uh, so this is not good for Kenny Florian. I would say by any stretch of the imagination, this is certainly like a black mark against him and his his. Uh, duties as an analyst this is kind of going to follow him i think for a while because this is the kind of thing that it's super easy to make fun of him about on the internet but also like i don't know man i'm not going to burn kenny florian at the stake just yet yeah like no i and i don't think so i i think that the suspension seems like the right justified move one of the things that i wondered about and we touched on a little bit when i was talking with danny downs about it is and we've talked about this before how right now especially in the mma media space you have a lot of people you have you know ex-fighter analysts people who uh, are just fight analysts, people who sometimes will go out of their way to say how they are not journalists, that they do not consider themselves journalists, that they, they want to be kind of removed from those rules and expectations. Uh, and I kind of wonder, not that I think that that's an excuse here, but it does make me wonder 
when we let all these other people say, hey, I'm just going to go on and just say stuff, basically, and I won't be held accountable for it because I will explain later that I'm not a journalist. Or I'll just you know, get on Twitter and report any rumor I hear, and if you want to come back at me for the ones that don't end up being true, I'll just say, hey, I'm not, I'm not claiming to be an actual journalist. I'm just saying stuff. It seems like we've allowed that gray area to kind of grow in MMA media, maybe in just digital media in general, or sports digital media. Uh, and it seems like maybe stuff like this is an example of how that can go pretty wrong. Because when you know we, we say, hey, he's an ex-fighter analyst, he has a special perspective on it, but then when something like this happens, we're like, hey, how did you not know the rules of journalism? Right. Well, maybe, I'm not saying he didn't know that plagiarism was wrong, but there are those kinds of instances where some people might not know the rules because no one ever bothered to hold them to those rules. In addition to that, uh, since I guess I just laid out a best-case scenario explanation for Kenny Florian that this was an honest mistake, maybe the worst-case scenario, and like just to kind of devil's advocate it a little bit, a lot of competition there right now for the job that Kenny Florian has, right? There That's are a, a lot of aging and retired fighters and people like Robin Black and, and Jack Slack who are doing their own technical breakdowns. There's a lot of competition for a very limited number of jobs. You, you know, there's a lot of Daniel Cormier, uh, Kenny Florian, and more to the point, Dominic Cruz type dudes out there all trying to do this job. Uh, so if it turned out that that guys were cutting corners and trying to get a little extra uh, edge on the competition here and there and not showing all their work, I also wouldn't be shocked by that. That's a good point. All right, let's move on. We, did, we talked a lot about that. Uh, the next question from Neil uh, from Northern Ireland. He writes, I know that we all like to think that Dana White's eyes light up every time he has a chance to have Conor McGregor on a card, but is there just a possibility that Dana wouldn't mind seeing Dos Anjos beat the UFC's golden boy at UFC 197? If McGregor was to win, he would really be over the top as a doubleweight champion and have the UFC in a nasty place where they would have to bow to his every whim, whereas if he lost, he would still have a lot of interesting fights. Edgar, Aldo rematch, Pettis, Diaz, Cerrone, etc., and could make lots of money for the UFC without the added problem a win might bring is there just a chance that dana might be backing dos anjos in this one uh i wanted to talk a little bit about this ben just sort of about the relationship with between conor mcgregor and the ufc this week because uh after the ufc 197 fight card was quote-unquote confirmed by the ufc where they send out their email uh where they pretend like no one has mentioned that as a fight yet and they're just like hey check out what we're announcing good news yeah uh conor mcgregor also put out his own quasi announcement slash confirmation of the fight via Facebook, which was a little bit cheeky, didn't reference the UFC at all, except to note that he was fighting for the UFC lightweight title and made numerous uh, references to quote unquote McGregor uh, productions, right? So there is a lot of stuff going on right now with the biggest star in the UFC and the UFC and their relationship together. It seems like you're trying to get yourself called a weirdo journalist on Twitter by Dana White. Who, I've been called worse. <laughs> who insists that people are putting out uh, all caps bullshit about his relationship with Conor McGregor, that there is no rift, everything is fine. Uh, we mentioned before that we keep seeing an awful lot of smoke on this issue, and I guess it could turn out that there's zero fire whatsoever, but you're right, when you start adding up the McGregor promotions... Uh, quasi-press release, which is a sweet move, by the way. Yeah, uh, and kind of what he's been talking about doing the entire time he's been in the UFC. Right. It's just that when he first started, it seemed like uh, 
he was trying to do it as a bit more buddy-buddy with the UFC. And now, at least to read between the lines, it seems like the tone has shifted. It does seem like that. Although maybe we're just weirdo journalists. That's right. Bullshit uh, in all caps. I'm going to say that... Can we use that as a blurb for the Co-Main Event Podcast? Bullshit in all caps. <laughs> well, I think he was actually not talking about us. He could have Doesn't been. matter. Doesn't matter. <laughs> we'll just Florian this thing. Oh, see, already you're doing it. You're, you're, the, you're the person you hate. Uh, I'm going to say the fact that this is even a question and that this is an accepted premise for a question, and I'm not challenging this, this premise necessarily from Neil from Northern Ireland tells you that this is kind of a problem that the UFC has created for itself. When it gets into these situations where it has fights and it's clear that the UFC is backing one fighter here, the UFC wants to see one specific outcome, like when Conor McGregor fought Dennis Seaver, uh, for example, to kind of set up his rise, and you know who the UFC wants to see come out on top there because you can tell who they're going to make money off of, who they're palling around with, who they're taking for rides and Ferraris, and who... You know, gets to watch the ride in Ferrari via YouTube. Like that was the rest me. Of I us. watched on the internet. Yeah, uh, and I think that that once you do that and you do it as just unabashedly and obviously as the UFC has done it with Conor McGregor and with some other people, then you can't be surprised if that be, then becomes a narrative going forward in different fights of who does the UFC want to win here. And that's a problem for you as a fight promoter. I think you get into some tricky territory when people are going to start looking at it and be like, what is the UFC trying to pull here? Who do they want to see come out on top? Yeah, well, we talked about it a little bit with Anthony Pettis last week in our preview of, of Sunday's event to say that I think I might have said... I feel like win win or lose against Dos Anjos, the move for Anthony Pettis would be to call out Conor McGregor because that's the money fight, whether or not Conor McGregor. Alvarez, yeah. Yeah, well, no. I mean, no matter if Conor McGregor wins or loses against okay, Dos right. Anjos, okay. if, well, I guess it works both ways now, but I was saying originally if Pettis were to beat Alvarez, the money move would be to call out Conor McGregor no matter what happens against Dos Anjos. Uh, and so I think Neil from Northern Ireland like makes a fairly solid point, like, and really, Conor McGregor has set him up in a good position. Kind of set himself up in a good position where no matter if he wins or loses, he has a ton of big money opportunities coming his way after this. I think it's going to be most interesting to see what happens if he wins, because then we'll get into the situation where the UFC will need to make a decision as to whether or not it's going to let him keep both belts. Because right now we have sort of a BJ Penn type situation where he moved up to fight George St. Pierre at 170 when I think he still had the lightweight title. He did, and there was. You know, it was kind of unspoken, like, all right, we'll let him do this if he wins. And then as the welterweight champion again, uh, he would be stripped of the lightweight title. And I think just, that might have even been spoken. Right. Make a go of it at welterweight. So what they're going to do with Conor McGregor remains to be seen because they've never let a guy have two belts in the same weight class before. They've never really had that, had to make the choice even before. Uh, but you can certainly make the case that financially speaking, it would be best to let him keep both. But it would also be a big time... Uh, diversion uh you know from what they've done before right well and i think you're right that it'll just be the most interesting thing overall to see what would happen if he goes out there and beats rafael dos anjos uh i also think though that that's going to be that that is not an, a walkthrough fight by any means for conor mcgregor no. so that's no. going to be very interesting to see how that one plays out yeah i mean if he just if he goes out there and knocks dos anjos out in 13 seconds like he did jose aldo shit man we better all start. We might as well all just throw down our our we're earthly possessions and cower before the god McGregor and hope that he turns out to be a benevolent god. You know, if he goes out there and he knocks out Rafael Dos Anjos in the first round, 
you and I are going to be watching the DVD of The Secret that night. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely right. Next question this week comes from David Flannery. He writes, well, in all caps, breaking news, according to the UFC on Fox Facebook page, uh, if 1-0 pro Mickey Gall can pull off a win at UFC 196, he will then get to fight Phil Brooks, a.k.a. the man himself, CM Punk, later this year. According to SureDog, Mickey Gall is 2-0 as an amateur and 1-0 as a pro. His opponent, some dude named Michael Jackson, is 0-0 as a pro. If he was even looking at, if I was even looking at the right guy, which there's been some, some trouble there, finding the right Michael Jackson. Uh, I can imagine. How the hell does a dude that has actually competed in MMA previously after earn a fight against an old former pro wrestler with no previous MMA experience. I would think the UFC would have wanted their homie, Mr. Brooks to fight someone with a little less or with as little experience as himself. So they, they could make him a little more profitable. If he happened to beat the shit out of some no name opponent in his first fight, we obviously have no idea what Phil Brooks is capable of, but Mickey Gall has himself a couple of finishes and has more experience than Phil Brooks. So he might just do what he said in the article and finish him in the first round. This is if he can get past his 0-0 opponent in the prestigious fight pass prelims of UFC 196. Uh, please discourse. Uh, so the CM Punk story, the plot thickens. Yeah. Man, and it, it's just, as far as I'm concerned, just gets weirder and weirder every step we go. <laughs> yes, it does. Uh, entertainingly weird, I guess, at least so far. And here's one where what I hope, the best case scenario interpretation I have of this is... The UFC went out there looking for a fight, as it were. Looking for a fight. Not Look, looking. Okay. Looking for a fight. You're dropping the G there? And exclamation, or and apostrophe All right. at the end. Uh, and found Mickey Gall, who maybe looked good, was outspoken about wanting to fight CM Punk. And you think, okay, here we go. Here's somebody who doesn't seem like a total mismatch, but it also doesn't seem like we just plucked some hobo off the tracks and uh, took off his, his, took his bindle and his scraggly coat and put some MMA gloves on him and told him get out there and fall down when CM Punk hits you in the face. We're finding an actual fighter, but one with not a ton of experience. Still, as David Flannery points out, more experience than CM Punk. Uh, and you're putting him in there thinking, all right, he's going to fight once so everybody can see what he's got uh, and maybe form like a baseline opinion of him. Then he fights again against CM Punk. You know, uh, we uh, assume... Uh, Still have remains to be seen if CM Punk can get healthy and stay healthy long enough to fight. And if CM Punk wins, then you can keep working the CM Punk angle. He's beat somebody who has already fought at least once in the UFC, granted, against a guy who was 0-0 as a pro. And if he loses, then you got this guy, Mickey Gall, who by then will be, what, 3-0? and uh, And maybe you do something with that guy going forward. Although then you, you do put yourself in a situation, and somebody brought this up recently, like if you have that guy and he's 3-0, he beat one dude who had no pro fights, then another dude who had no pro fights. Now he's 3-0, he's got two fights in the UFC. What do you do with him now? Because there's not a whole lot of other dudes like that in the UFC. You're going to have to throw him to somebody who might just chew him right up. Yeah, if you are 1-0 professional fighter Mickey Gall, this is an opportunity that you ab absolutely have to take, right? For right. both yeah. financial and other reasons like this this is a good opportunity for you but my god what a weird situation for everyone involved because if you're mickey gall you have to reconcile yourself with the idea that yeah i'm getting this great opportunity but here i am getting signed to the ufc after just one professional win and it's not because they think i'm really good 
right? Like you have to, if you're Mickey Gall, you have to be smart enough to like implicitly know like they don't want me to win this fight against CM Punk. So it's not like they are signing me because they think I'm the next Sage Northcutt, right? Like I'm being brought in here because they think that I might lose to CM Punk. And if you're CM Punk, a.k.a. Will Brooks, and you're up at the Duke Rufus. Phil Brooks. What did I say? Will Brooks. Will, oh, wow. Bell- Will Brooks is the Bellator, Bellator lightweight champion. Uh, if you're Phil Brooks, who is Will Brooks' brother, I believe, uh, and you're up there at Rufus Sport training for your UFC debut, you have to know in the back of your mind, they're trying to find someone I can beat. Like, they're trying to set me up with a winnable fight, whether or not that has ever been spoken to you or not. You implicitly understand that. If you're the UFC... You, are, you sent Dana White, for God's sakes, the president of the damn company, out on a road trip to find someone you hope loses to CM Punk. So, and also to find some good Italian joints with Matt Sarah. Well, and you're, with, you're in the right company. Dana I'm White, sure. looking for a restaurant, as somebody <laughs> pointed out to me on Twitter recently. If Matt Sarah doesn't already know where the best restaurants are, <laughs> Italian restaurants in any city he mentions or he visits, I bet he has like a weird sixth sense where he just like... Or he has his own, like, Yelp Platinum account that, <laughs> just for Matt Sarah. So this puts everybody in a very strange position. And it a does. situation we're not used to being in because previously to this, in almost all cases, when a dude has come into the UFC with some previous quasi-celebrity and has tried to make a go of it as a fighter, it has felt like the UFC has used that as an excuse to make an example of that person. With the ex- notable exception of Brock Lesnar, but Brock Lesnar was a super freak athlete, and right. we all knew he was going to be kind of good. But, like, you know, James Tony, Kimbo Slice, these guys come into the UFC, and we feel like, all right, well, we're going to use this as an opportunity to show the world Sean that Gannon. Our, yes, Sean Gannon, who had to fight. God, I, <laughs> I still think of Sean Gannon having to go out there and fight Brandon Lee Hinkle, and just, it pains me to think about it, that they just tossed him to the wolves yeah. against a guy like who didn't later become like a, a, a like a UFC standout by any stretch of the imagination but like I think Brandon Lee Hinkle was like an all-American wrestler maybe at like Ohio State or something like that so yeah they took the guy who fought Kimbo Slice in a basement and were kind of like fight this guy yeah, it would be it would be a circus. Obviously, if and we didn't went and Sean got Kimbo Gannon Slice. get fired from his job as a like police officer from Boston because he had to I seem to remember there was a whole to do about it that like, I think the whole to do was when the video of him fighting Kimbo Slice came out right I, I wonder where I wonder. I hope Sean Gannon got his job back or got some kind of job back I hope he's okay yeah, yeah. anyway do we got time for one more of these um, this question from Gabe Dirt quite the call out by, on BJ Penn by Nick Lentz have to admit it was a good read uh, no one really seems to be questioning the ethic here, though, T-H-O. Is an active fighter supposed to be calling out ret- a retired fighter? Should anyone really? We all know that an old fight dog like Penn is going to bite on that shit. This feels like a little bit to me like a crow picking at a carcass. Uh, fact check. Who called out who first here, BJ Penn or Nick Lentz? Okay, Because I, I thought it was BJ Penn. The most recent Nick Lentz call out, the really lengthy one, was a response to BJ Penn, you know, basically showing up at Jackson Winklejohn saying, I'm coming back and I want that Nick Lentz fight in March. Like he has like a date and everything all picked out. Like you think he said he wanted to fight him at UFC 197. Uh, and then there's this lengthy response from Nick Lentz, basically setting out all these preconditions and stipulations uh, for this fight and really going, going hard at BJ Penn. But before that, before his response to Penn's call out, didn't Nick Lentz have a, have a poem? 
Making oh. fun of BJ. So we're talking about sort of a long distance call out where BJ Penn is now responding to Nick Lentz's original call out from perhaps months ago. Yeah, I have a hard time remembering who started this and why. In how, any how case, how did they even get started? BJ Penn and Nick Lentz. Come in on. any case, it is weird. A weird move for BJ Penn on a scale of zero to ten. Do you even get to zero in your <laughs> desire to see BJ Penn fight again? I get to 10 in my desire to not see him fight again. Okay, so you really flipped the question around on me. There you go. So, I, Yeah, it just bothers me, especially because, do you remember what happened the last time? Granted, you know, Nick Lentz is not Frankie Edgar. Yeah, I remember when the ghost of BJ Penn showed up to, like, kind of march around the cage and not do much against Frankie Edgar. Yes, I remember. Uh, yeah, well, the thing was, too, that... After that fight, and it was an ugly beatdown that BJ Penn suffered, and he got up there in the press conference and was like, you know, uh, I just needed to come out here and, and find out for myself. I, I would have always wondered if I could have got back in there and done it again, and now I know I can't. Now I know that it's really over, but I needed to find out for myself, uh, even though it was a kind of a painful lesson. But I, I found out, and now I know, and now I can go home, and I'm satisfied. And that wasn't that long ago. How long ago was that? I don't know. I don't have BJ Penn's Wikipedia page open in front of me, but you're right. It it seems like just it seems like only yesterday that we had to have that uh, sad display from BJ Penn, both in the fight and at the post fight press conference. Uh, but you know, professional fighters, man, it seems like uh, their biggest enemy is time alone with themselves. Yeah. Well, it man. was July of 2014 at the Ultimate Fighter 19 finale that BJ Penn. Lost via third third round TKO punches to Frankie Edgar, and I you know I understand why that might be the case for fighters that you go home you sit around you think about it and you're suddenly the former UFC fighter former UFC lightweight champion maybe that the stuff starts to bug you you, you want to get back in there you feel like you could do it again especially you think like all right well maybe I can't beat Frankie Edgar because look how well Frankie Edgar has done since then. Yeah, Frankie Edgar's But Nick good. Lentz, sure, maybe I could beat Nick Lentz, and he's being a jerk to me, so let me go in there and, and smash his face. That's been, like, my ethos my entire life. How am I supposed to just change it now? I totally understand how that could happen, and those thoughts could start to swirl around your brain. And I would hope, if I were in that situation, I would have some people around me who would talk me off of that ledge. Because it has to end sometime. It can't, you can't go on and do this indefinitely. Yeah. You can't be 50 years old and still have some dude calling you out with a poem that he got somebody else to write for him. Go on the MMA hour, the MMA fortnight, which I assume will still be in existence, probably be three months long by then. Read it out there and then have you be like getting up off the recliner. Well, there we go again. Like it has to be over at some point. And what are you trying to do at this point? I don't know what you tell yourself if you're BJ Penn and you lose to Nick Lentz. I mean, that's a tough one to reconcile in your own mind, I would think. But that's going to do it for Listener Mail this week. Hopefully we won't end up having to talk about an impending fight between BJ Penn and Nick Lentz. If you have a question, a comment, a concern to air to the Co-Main Event podcast in future weeks, you know how to get a hold of us. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning and catches you up on the news and notes that we miss from Tuesday through Friday when we're not recording the podcast. It's short. It's funny. It's easy to unsubscribe if you don't like it, but we think you will. As for right now, though, we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one.
Well, Ben, there is an awful lot to discuss about Dominic Cruz's victory over the weekend against TJ Dillashaw, wherein uh, Cruz recaptured the UFC Men's Bantamweight Championship that he never really lost. Uh, and I don't know who you thought won this fight. I don't know that I care. Let's talk, to begin with, just about Dominic Cruz, the 30-year-old man who has now fought twice, since October 1st, 2011, has been through three major knee surgeries, has been through a gruesome quad injury, has been through debilitating and matching injuries to both hands, uh, among other things, and yet came back against TJ Dillashaw this last weekend and appeared to have not lost a step. Perhaps he faded a little bit down the stretch. I don't know if you want to attribute that to, uh, you know, not just not being used to being in the cage fighting for 25 minutes, but dear Lord, Dominic Cruz is back and he looks better than ever. He really does. And you're right. I Like, if we want to say, hey, maybe he faded a little bit down the stretch, you mean in a frantic five-round fight that no matter how good a shape you're in, and how good your your rhythm and timing and momentum is as far as recent competitions, that's going to take a toll on you. Anybody might fade a little bit in a five-round fight like that. He still looked awesome. And when he was clearly suffering with some injuries, it looked at first, I thought, oh, God, don't tell me he's suffering from another knee injury when he started limping around there. He said afterwards it was his left foot that he had plantar fasciitis coming in, and then it started to bother him in the fight. Uh, and still, you know, cobbled it all together, and went through, I think he deserved that decision. I got no problem saying that. Although, it was a close fight, it was an awesome fight, and it was a fight where he was really tested, and it's super impressive to come back after everything he's been through, and after as long as he's been away, and to look like that against a guy like TJ Dillashaw. Yeah, it makes you wonder where he would be right now if he had spent his late 20s fighting, instead of trying to rehab from all of these, you know, one injury after another. Uh, the fight just happened last night. It was this weird Sunday night UFC card. We're here on Monday morning recording the podcast. Uh, at this point, I have to tell you, I'm a little, I, I, I feel a little bit weary of the conversations that it seems like we have to have after every single close fight in the UFC where everybody online is going to tell you which rounds they thought which dude won. And we're going to have the same argument about scoring criteria and who these judges are and whether or not Douglas Crosby was asleep during some earlier uh, undercard fights. Uh, I'm not sure that you could ever come up with a scoring criteria for a mixed martial arts fight that wouldn't make TJ Dillashaw against Dominic Cruz close as fuck. Yeah. I agree just with that. seemed like, these guys could fight 50 times and they might split them 50 50 and we might still not really know who was the better fighter of the two. Uh, but this was an amazing athletic display really from both guys and the, the gifs are floating around on the internet right now. And this is one where I don't even know if you realize how good Dominic Cruz's performance was until you get to watch him in slow motion. I agree. And this is also one of the ones that made me think, Weren't we just talking about, hey, people don't care about fighters below a certain weight, and even if it's technically brilliant, the masses aren't going to get it. This is one where I felt like, I think you show this to anybody who is even casually interested in combat sports, and they're going to recognize that there was some awesome stuff going on between those two guys. I, I don't think it's that hard to see. I would hope so, yeah, because uh, it was a very impressive display from Dominic Cruz. Now... We get to the end of the fight, 
And I think it's pretty clear. We talked about this last week. Dominic Cruz wins back the men's bantamweight championship. I don't know if there's another person out there that you could say rivals him as greatest men's bantamweight of all time at this point. I feel like he's kind of got that locked down. Uh, it felt cathartic to see him be able to come back and still do his thing the way he used to do it. And it was awesome to watch him complete what one of the greatest comeback stories in the history of mixed martial arts. And then he immediately talks about how he's injured and he says it's plantar fasciitis, which is a fairly minor injury. But did you, when, when he started talking about being injured, did you kind of get a, Oh, here we go again, feeling in your stomach. Oh, I mean, I felt better when he started explaining the injury. As soon as he was limping around in the fifth round, I felt like I could see it all unfolding in front of me where Dominic Cruz wins a close and contested and maybe even somewhat controversial decision over T.J. Dillashaw, reclaims the belt, and then can't defend it again for another four years. Right. It, see, it's, it spurred some very kind of like complicated emotions in me because like everything I just said, Dominic Cruz completes this wonderful comeback and like he's back after all these years. He's the UFC bantamweight champion again. And immediately I automatically start thinking, well, now let's see if he can stay active and healthy enough to keep it, which is a strange way to feel after what essentially was the biggest triumph of his career. Yeah. Do, do you feel like you have a little leftover trauma? Is that what we're talking about here? Maybe. Yeah. PTSD that when it comes be. to your boy Dominic that could Cruz. Be. I, I hadn't thought of it that way, but that, that could be an apt, uh, this description of it. What I wonder is how everything that's happened to Dominic Cruz and what he's been doing in the meantime, how that has changed the way we see Dominic Cruz, because it felt like a really inspiring feel good story to see him come back after all that time and get in there and win back the belt that he never really lost. And it seemed like he had so many more fans coming back than he did when he left. Cause I yeah. remember people were not like, especially after that, that last fight that he had against uh, Uriah Faber, where he won a really close one over a really popular guy in Uriah Faber uh, to hold on to that uh, UFC belt after he had first come over from the WEC. And, you know, he, he was not a whole lot of people's favorite fighter at that point. People criticized his style. Uh, then he went in there and beat Demetrius Johnson and then dropped down to flyweight. Didn't seem like he had this, this big push. And I think it's partly that now he became an underdog people really want to root for because his comeback seemed to be so difficult and so fraught with peril. And also maybe that they got to know him better or feel like they got to know him better through watching him as an analyst, a job that he really got better at over time and really started to seem like a, a smart, articulate guy who people connected with even just accidentally, even just kind of through like osmosis by watching him and having it on in the background when they insist on throwing back to the Fox Sports desk over and over and again, and when Dominic Cruz starts talking, you realize, oh, okay, well, at least it's Dominic Cruz talking if we have to sit here and listen to the people at the desk again. And I think that now when he comes back, people have a completely different view on him than they had back when he was the active champion. I agree with you. He was a pretty divisive fighter before, and I think if he sticks around, he may become divisive again just because of the style that he fights in. And I think that he used his uh commentary role with Fox in a really clever way as a fighter. He like, and this maybe speaks to his mindset as a competitor or an athlete, but clearly he used that downtime as an opportunity to get really good at be at being an analyst on television. 
And because he became really good at being a television analyst, he also improved his own interview game yes, and his own absolutely. like on the mic stick work, spoken word work, you might even say, as a fighter because uh he always had a reputation as being a smart guy, but as he comes back against TJ Dillashaw, he like immediately established himself as an interesting interview and a good trash talker, which uh, he may have been before, but I don't necessarily think that that was what you thought of when you thought of Dominic Cruz. Now you think of him that way. And I have to say, uh, he's good at it. And I marvel at like kind of how honest and mean he is yeah. about it because it didn't seem like he fully buried the hatchet with TJ Dillashaw after this fight. Like he came to the post post fight press conference, kind of still talking shit about TJ Dillashaw, telling him he was already making excuses. It doesn't seem like he's completely buried the hatchet with Uriah Faber, who is a guy that he has a uh, a kind of long blood feud with, although over super silly reasons when you get right down to <laughs> yes. it. Uh, and it just feels like he is has kind of figured out a way to be an antagonist. Uh, but like weirdly a likable one too, but that he has definitely figured out that that is good for his career and more power to him for being smart enough to do it. Yeah. Well, and I think some of that might just be the maturity that comes with age and experience in this game. And he, by staying in it as an analyst, he, he got that side of the experience even without actually fighting. It's easy to forget that when he fought Uriah Faber that last time at UFC 132 in 2011, he was what, like 24 years old? Uh, you know, he's, he's coming to his own a little bit more and I think maybe understands that aspect of the business. I was also interested when I, uh, I saw maybe it was in an interview he did with Ariel Hawani afterwards where we're being asked about, hey, here are some potential next fights for Dominic Cruz. And he was saying, yeah, no, those are all interesting fights. First, I want to sit down with Dana White and Lorenzo Fertitta and talk about some money. Right. It's, that's going around. Right. And it's kind of gratifying to see from longtime observers of the sport. It is. Everybody wants to sit down and talk about some money. That's right. And you wonder why it wasn't like that before. And I, it's weird. It's one of those things where it seems like it's a cumulative effect uh, where a couple guys start doing it. It seems to work for people and everybody starts kind of waking up slowly and realizing, yeah, wait a minute. We should be discussing this stuff rather than just going out there, hoping we fight well, and then we show up in a locker room in a big envelope full of money that we did not negotiate for or sign any contract for. It just finds its way into our hands. Yeah, it's going to definitely be interesting to see what happens next for Dominic Cruz after they sit down and talk about the money because uh, TJ Dillashaw rematch seems viable. Although, again, we get into this situation where you can't just do a rematch for everybody. Uh Rafaela Sunsau will be returning from injury at some point and has a, a fairly pronounced claim at number one contendership. Cagey ass old Uriah Faber is still hanging around, seeming like he could be the number one contender in the bantamweight division against all odds. Uh, and then you got, you know, potential crazy scenarios like a Frankie Edgar or somebody maybe coming down to bantamweight to fight, uh, Dominic Cruz. So it'll be interesting to see what they do with him uh, after the money situation gets sorted out. Ben, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we will move on to round number two <coughs> this week. Bless you. What, it's a Ben? Cough. You don't say bless you when somebody coughs. Felt like I was being nice there. What? What is your Are You Fucking Kidding Me for this week? Well, Chad, I know that by now you have seen uh, UFC CEO Lorenzo Fertitta's remarks uh, in the Boston Herald, Jack Encarnacion, who uh, a share dog writer, also writes for the Boston Herald. Uh, they're talking about the Reebok deal, like you do. Uh, and Lorenzo Fertitta at one point 
there's a whole lot of interesting stuff going on in this article for one thing when he talks about the the pool of money kind of thing which depending on which UFC person he asks does or does not exist again the claim that the UFC is paying out more and this one says that they're actually paying out more to fighters than it is taking in from Reebok which seems hard to believe based on what we've seen that they're paying so far and what we know the deal to be worth it's one thing to spend more on the program, but to be paying out more to the fighters, I don't know if I believe that claim just yet. But there's a part in it where he talks about the withholding the pay from people for outfitting policy violations. And Lorenzo Fertitta says, quote, I think it's not fair for fighters not to comply with the outfitting policy. It's a very, very small minority of athletes that haven't complied so far. It's like when you went to school, you know, some people get detention for being out of uniform. It's not that hard. Tuck your shirt in. Hashtag A-Y-F-K-M. You fucking kidding me? First of all, I like how Lorenzo Fertitta, when you went to school, the default position is, of course, there was a uniform because you went to some fancy yeah, private school. Everybody had a uniform when they went to school, right? Yeah. Some um, richy rich shit. Also, I don't know if you really want to make that comparison, man, where the fighters become a bunch of children in school forced to wear uniforms that they had really no say in. Because we might start looking at that comparison and finding out that there are a a lot more accuracies in that analogy that do not speak well of the relationship between the UFC and the fighters right now. Are you fucking kidding me? Well, Ben, as luck should have it, I also have a Fertitta-related Are You Fucking Kidding Me this week. Well, how about that? I think it will shock absolutely no one listening to this show, Ben, that neither you nor I are particularly adroit businessmen. Still, Just look at how many sponsors we have for today's episode. Still, I got to say that it caught my eye this week when the New York Post reported that uh, Frank and Lorenzo Fertitta are on the verge of selling their Fertitta Entertainment Management Company, which the Post says, quote, helps design, develop and operate resort and entertainment destinations. And they're going to sell this company for approximately four hundred and sixty million dollars. Now, see, that's fine. That part I understand. But here's where things go over my head a little bit. The intended buyer of the Fertitta Entertainment Company, the business that is about to pay the Fertitas $460 million, is Red Rock Casinos, which is owned by the Fertitta family. Huh. So, are you fucking kidding me? The Post writes, quote, while normal, the arrangement... (laughs) Well, not normal. The arrangement is perfectly legal, which is always good when you have to point that out in the story, Yeah. Uh, which, you know, I have no reason to doubt that. I'm sure that this is on the up and up. But if you read the actual story, it gets pretty complicated. It has something to do with an IPO and the Deutsche Bank and Red Rock declaring Chapter 11 bankruptcy back in 2009. I don't understand any of it except to say, as we sometimes say on the podcast, there's levels to this shit. And if you read the story, I'm just going to close with the following uh, paragraph. The Fertitta brothers, each worth $1.6 billion, according to Forbes, will get $113 million apiece once the management company firm is sold to their casino business, while their kids will get $159 million. Are you fucking kidding me? So you're saying where we went wrong is not starting an entertainment promotion. I'm saying you and me sell the co-main event podcast to you and me for upwards of $46. All right. You and I could both get like 10 bucks, maybe, and our kids would get like a buck and a quarter. 
while unusual, that sounds perfectly legal. That's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Well, Chad, your boy, Ed Alvarez, he may not have looked as fresh as pretty Tony Pettis, standing there across the cage from one another, looking over at the man's good-looking fade, Pettis with his perfectly sculpted goatee, his eyebrows on fleek, as the kids say, and hard-nosed Eddie Alvarez just standing there thinking, okay, but it's not how you look when you start. It's how you look when you finish. Indeed. He went out there and he made this one kind of a messy, gritty fight, got up in Anthony Pettis' face for a lot of it, a strategy that seemed like it paid dividends at the end, even if at the beginning it was a little bit of a, uh, a frustrating one for many of those of us watching. But he pulled another one off by the hair on his chinny-chin-chin, Eddie Alvarez, Beats Anthony Pettis via split decision, the second fight in a row that he wins in the UFC, but also wins in a way where he really easily could have lost. What does this one do for Eddie Alvarez? This is a kind of a weird one for Eddie Alvarez because, you know, I, I always say that I can like to consider this sports as much as I can. And sometimes in sports, things don't go the way you want them to, but you kind of understand people being disappointed or, uh, I don't know if you want to say mad at Eddie Alvarez, but this was a fight that clearly had a lot of people's interest peaked because they wanted to see the, the boxer Eddie Alvarez go out there and let it all hang out against uh, uh, dynamic striker Anthony Pettis. Uh, and it, that didn't really happen. Instead, Eddie Alvarez, who I think really correctly knew that his back was up against the wall and needed to put another win together after losing his UFC debut to Donald Cerrone back in uh, 2014, uh, did the smart thing and went out there and got the victory. It just turned out it wasn't the fight that, that anyone wanted to see. Uh, so that is an interesting question when it comes to what you do next matchmaker-wise. Uh, and we, I think we've seen you know last year and headed into this year, the UFC has kind of moved away from the way things used to be, where if you just won enough fights, eventually you got your title shot and, and has ever slowly sort of listed toward, I guess you would say more of a boxing matchmaking strategy where, where big money rules the day and maybe putting together exciting fights rules the day. I will say though, and I saw some people say this on social media and I would, uh, I would echo it in my belief. I feel like Eddie Alvarez has done enough for us in this sport putting together brawl after brawl after brawl throughout his career and throughout all the years that he's spent in other organizations away from the UFC. And if he goes out there now and wants to do the smart thing and wrestle his way to a couple of victories to get on a UFC win streak, I can't be mad at the guy. Yeah, I see what you're saying there. I can't be mad at him either when you put it like that. I had not really thought of it from that perspective. Uh, I also, though, wonder about Anthony Pettis because you talk about a precipitous fall where the word is out. Yeah. Uh, also, it feels like I know a place in Missoula you could go right now and still find that damn corn nuts display of Anthony Pettis hanging out there with the UFC title uh, and the like little post-it note that says that there's been a 
a price slash on cord notes placed squarely over his face. You can go find that right now. And it, it has been so swift, this decline for Anthony Pettis. I feel like when I was watching this one, I remembered maybe Eddie Alvarez had watched that Clay Guida fight to some extent. I mean, that one was one where uh, Anthony Pettis maybe opened himself up too much. And this one's you could see that moments in the bout when he had it in the range that he wanted uh, to attack Eddie Alvarez, he was attacking him. You know, with a couple shots at a time, didn't really want to open up because he was scared of that takedown. And then eventually, Eddie Alvarez kind of wore, wore him down, got him on the mat at a critical time there in the third round. And that that slight difference made it all. And it, it's hard to not feel bad for Anthony Pettis because, hey, you go in there against Rafael Dos Anjos, who we've all learned now is very good. You get popped in your eye right off the bat. And that kind of sets the tone for the entire fight. And then you go in there against Eddie Alvarez and you barely lose. And now people are going to be talking about how you're on a two-fight skid, you were overrated to begin with, we can't believe we ever thought you were that good. Yeah, well, and you're right, it was a, it is a precipitous fall from being the cover of the Wheaties box and the, the guy that Dana White liked to talk about could be the number one fighter, pound-for-pound pound fighter in the world if he could just stay healthy, and one of the first guys to get one of those individual Reebok sponsorships, uh, and now to be this guy who's 0-2, and, and and as I said before, the word is out, the blueprint is out there on kind of how to beat Anthony Pettis because it's what we saw Gilbert Melendez do in their fight at UFC 181 before he got caught in that guillotine choke in the, in the second round. It's, for the most part, what we saw Rafael Dos Anjos do in their fight at UFC 185, although you're right that you know Dos Anjos kind of did to Pettis what he later did to Cerrone and and touched him up on the feet uh, in a way that kind of altered the rest of the fight. And now Eddie Alvarez does the same thing to Anthony Pettis. Uh, and you, I think I feel like you're also right that it's real tempting now to go back in time and look at Anthony Pettis's five-fight win streak in the UFC and say, well, he beat Jeremy Stevens, who likes to strike with you. He beat Joe Lauzon, who has real good uh, grappling skills, but also... You know, likes to strike with you. Didn't get a chance to use him there. Beat, yeah. Beat Donald Cerrone, who likes to strike with you. Uh, and then he beat Benson Henderson real quick by armbar. Uh, so it's tempting to say that this grappling has kind of always been Anthony Pettis's Achilles heel. And now that you're on this 0-2 skid, you're going to have to go find some answers, I think, if you ever want to reclaim your status both as a championship contender and as... Uh, a dude who, as you said, his eyebrows are on fleek, and the UFC wants to put you in a corn nuts life size cutout to have down at the at the Seven Eleven. Yeah, well, and I feel like the there's still enough interest in Anthony Pettis, but he does have to find some way to address that problem. Otherwise, everybody who can is going to just keep trying to do that to him over and over again. And it's not like it was an easy path to victory for Eddie Alvarez, even though he managed to make it work. He got touched up pretty good right. on that one himself. Anthony Pettis is still very skilled and very dangerous, clearly. Right. Well, what I wonder is where where this puts you as Eddie Alvarez, because I, afterwards I heard him talking about how you know a title fight would be nice, which, yeah, that's that's kind of how everybody feels, man. Uh, but when you're coming off a couple of those fights where he took damage against Gilbert Melendez, he took some damage against Anthony Pettis, he barely squeezed by in both of them, do we just have fond enough memories of what Eddie Alvarez has done, as you put it, that we say, you know what, sure man, go for it? Or do we, do you need to see a little more from him, whether he decides to, to as you put it, fight smart to, to get a couple wins, or if he goes back to brawling with people, are we looking for more wins from him, or are we looking for a type of win? 
Well, I was only half joking at the beginning of the show when I implied that some vindictive motherfucker might come along and say, Eddie Alvarez, you want to be a wrestler? How about you wrestle with a returning and healthy Habib Nurmagomedov, Nurmagomedov when he comes back? Uh, obviously, that uh, depends entirely on Nurmi's health. But again, I think both Anthony Pettis and and Eddie Alvarez uh, benefit from being in this lightweight division where it's hashtag would watch matchups no matter what the hell happens to you. Uh, I don't think you're going to let Eddie Alvarez fight the winner of Rafael Dos Anjos and Conor McGregor. Uh, Eddie Alvarez and Tony Ferguson? That Eddie Alvarez and Tony Ferguson hashtag would watch. Would watch. Uh, you know, and if you're Anthony Bettis, you got Michael Johnson, you got Nate, Nate Diaz, you got Ragin' Al Iaquinta, you got Michael Chiesa, you got, like, you can't throw a dead cat in the lightweight division without hitting a bunch of people who are awesome matchups for every other person in the division. So it's an embarrassment of riches that I think these guys are going to benefit from. Um, but it does, I think, at this point, kind of open the door for who will be number one contender after we uh, settle this super fight between RDA and Conor McGregor. It does. We seem to have entered one of those Game of Thrones, chaos is a ladder kind of moments for UFC lightweight contenders. Because as long as we don't know what the hell is going to happen with the title or with the situation, especially if Conor McGregor does go out there, knock out Rafael Dos Anjos, force us all to watch the DVD of The Secret, and then it's like, hold on, guys, I'll be right back. I have to go back down to Featherweight and defend this title. And everybody's sitting around like like that scene in the, the, the Batman movie where the Joker tells everybody that he tells the two guys that he's going to have tryouts and drops a, a sharp stick between them. That seems like what you would be doing with this pool of killer UFC lightweights all trying to be the next guy to get that big shot at the gold. And you're right that there are a ton of interesting fights out there, and it seems like one of those where you could have a round-robin tournament, and it just depends who gets matched up with who when. It'd be really difficult to, to determine who's actually the best. It seems like it just it could play out any number of ways. Yeah, and there's almost no wrong answer. Whoever you put out there would, would make for a great fight. I'm glad that we could close this discussion of the lightweight division and Anthony Pettis and, and Eddie Alvarez by making both a Game of Thrones reference and a Batman reference in the last minute. Yeah. I you got any like, other one you want to sneak in there? No. I feel like we've we are gonna go out on a high note right now in our discussion of the lightweight division. I'm i I'm afraid of screwing it up by trying to make any other comparisons. I'm pretty sure then we'll next round we'll start talking about heavyweights and make a little tango and cash uh, reference. It'll, it'll all bring it back around. <laughs> yes, it's, we're going to come hurtling back to Earth. That's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Ben, Travis Brown ends up defeating Matt Mitrione, or as we like to call him here on the podcast, Matt Matrione. That Matt Matrione. Uh, via third round TKO on Sunday night in the uh, heavyweight feature, I guess you could say, on uh, UFC Fight Night 81. Uh, but I have a feeling the thing we're going to remember about this fight is Travis Brown reaching deep into the skull of Matt Mitrione twice with a couple of eye pokes for which he was not penalized or warned. 
in any way uh, and ends up getting the victory in this fight because as as we all know, you might as well just go out there and cheat in this sport because if you do so, the thing that most often happens to you is that you win. Yeah, it held true here. And I think that we can argue about how much those eye pokes influence this fight, but this seems like a, a it's not a direct A to B line that you poked the guy in the eye and then you won, but you poked the guy in the eye to where he said that he was having problems seeing and then you punched him in that same eye, which then that's where the, the eye really started to get gross. It's not hard to make the argument that had he been able to see the punch coming a little better uh, and hadn't been poked in the eye twice by that point, maybe that doesn't happen. Uh, and maybe everything that follows from it doesn't happen. It's like if you took an axe and put 50 wax into a tree and then later that night a storm blew through and the stiff wind blew the tree down. I don't know that you come out the next morning and be like, God damn, that wind just blew this tree right over. <laughs> You're saying that maybe your insurance agent wouldn't buy that? I'm just saying the two things may be connected. Yeah. Well, it also seems like in a lot of ways this was not the win for Travis Brown to really gain a lot of popularity and full head of steam momentum in the heavyweight no, division. This was... Like, if you want to frame Travis Brown as the heavyweight division's villain, like, you just got it right here. Because this is a guy who already came into this fight uh, with some clouds around him after recent allegations of domestic violence from his estranged wife. And after that, uh, reports that he, that while he's still married, he's out there dating Ronda Rousey, which, you know, the MMA people, if they want to get moralistic on you, they will. Uh, so it seems like that he did not gain any fans there. Uh, not to mention the fact that this dude lumbers around like six foot seven with a giant beard, just looking like if you needed a bad guy in a Rocky movie, he might be uh, straight out of central casting. And then to come out here and get a win against Matt Mitrione, who uh, I don't know that I would say he's well liked, but just the way that that Travis Brown got this victory, I think not only didn't necessarily catapult him forward in the heavyweight division, but really only underscored his status as a guy everyone wants to see get his comeuppance at some point. Although that's not the worst thing that could happen to you. No, it's be better honest. than being a nobody. Yeah. Uh, and as we've said many times before, if you're in the UFC's heavyweight division, uh, the you, if as long as you have a winning streak of one or more, there's always a possibility that you could be within arm's reach of the USC heavyweight title, depending on certain injuries and, and other people falling out of fights. Who the hell knows what could happen here? Uh, but, you know, I was really struck by, if we're going to talk about, go back to our, our running discussion about always cheating in MMA, when they bring on Mark Ratner, like we do, yep. to usually give us zero added NFL, insight. We saw it in an NFL game, and we, so we figured it would work We can for do us. that. Yeah, yeah, let's get him on the mic. And... He was talking, I think after the second eye poke, he's saying, well, you know, they're, they're unintentional, but if it happens again, then you got to take a point. Uh, and I, I think, I believe I retweeted, so, uh, noted MMA Twitter user, Susie Cousy, one of our favorite Suzanne Davis, friend of the podcast, pointing out how, okay, did Mark Ratner just tell us what the number is? Because before, that's one of the problems with this, is we've always labored under this unclear, uh, distinction between what, what does a foul have to be to result in a point deduction? 
as long as you can say it's accidental, does that mean you get to do the same foul over and over again? Do you get to do one foul and then a different kind of foul? And then maybe the same first foul over again, as long as you don't have three of the same. And by saying like, okay, hey, if there's another one, then there'll be three. Then you have to take a point. I mean, that's for one thing, that's not true. You don't have to take a point. The referee can just do whatever the hell he wants to. He could take a point on the first one if he wants to. He could take a point on the second one if he wants to. He could see three of them and then just still decide he's not going to take any points away from anybody. That's one of the big problems with this is you just have no idea what's going to happen next whenever there's a foul. And then, as you have pointed out in the past, wouldn't have mattered anyway because after the dude has been poked in the eye and you smashed his eye until it looks like an alien is trying to claw its way out of there, then it's not that hard to go ahead and finish him after that. Yeah, I mean, the the balance of power would stay with the eye poker even if he did get a, a point deducted on the first time, which I think for eye pokes at this stage in 2016 in mixed martial arts, you could take a point on the first eye poke. Everybody out there knows the deal at this point, and guys are still reaching out with their fingers open. Guys are still trying to do a football stiff arm to the face of their opponents when a guy comes in trying to throw punches. Uh, and you can't tell me that somewhere kicking around in the back of everybody's mind is not the idea of, well, if I put my hand in this guy's face, I disrupt his vision, I probably throw off his, his punches, and maybe also my pinky goes in his eyeball, in which case I gain an advantage and nothing bad will probably happen to me. Everybody is clearly thinking that. And so I think, man, you can take a point on the first time with an eye poke, as far as I'm concerned, at this, at this stage in the game. Let's talk a little bit about the meathead, Matt Matrione, because this loss leaves him in an interesting place. He was one of these guys, part of the growing army of guys who said they want to fight out their contracts and maybe test their, their worth on the open market, but he had also left the door open just for retirement. He's a 37-year-old guy who's fought each one of his professional fights in the in the octagon because he came off what season 10 of the ultimate fighter which was all heavyweights uh so he's a real anomaly in 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 that way uh what do you think happens with matt mitrione here does he go and fight for another organization or is have we seen the last of him you know i was struck by his comments that he did an interview with ari helwani before this fight that's the one where he was barefoot at media day oh because he couldn't wear his jordans right he showed up to media day wearing his jays and they wouldn't let him do it because of Reebok. So he had to take him off and go barefoot, um, which, as somebody pointed out, uh, Reebok makes shoes, damn it. They're a shoe company. And you get into a situation where you tell a guy, you can't wear your shoes, but we're not going to give you any shoes. That does not look good for you. Again, that's a situation where I think the best move is to let the guy wear his Jordans, right? Because it doesn't become a conversation piece. The then. alternative is have a dude out there barefoot because you wouldn't let him wear his shoes and he didn't have a pair of your shoes. And everybody's going to ask about it because it's not a normal thing for a person. Not even a normal thing for a guy like Matt Mitrion to do. Right, yeah. But Although he, he did take his flip-flops off that one time he was going to brawl with Tito Ortiz at the fighter well, you don't brawl summit. in your flip-flops, Exactly. Man. So, I mean, it's not it's not like we haven't seen Matt Mitrione barefoot in other situations before. Well, he made a lot of really smart comments, I think, when talking about fighting out of the contract and thinking about his future, that, you know, maybe it's time to retire. I, I, I couldn't really disagree with anything he was saying when, especially, you know, he's 37 years old, I believe, and you got to look and say, am I, am I heading on an upward trajectory or am all is all I'm doing right now sticking around. 
And I think that's a question that fighters should always be asking themselves, especially if they have options and they can do anything else. Because as you pointed out, you know, he, he has a college degree, but if you have a, a college degree from you know, 15 years ago, and you haven't used it. All you, the, your entire work history is as a professional athlete, first in the NFL and then uh, as a professional fighter in the UFC. You, at some point, that college degree does not mean that much anymore because, as he accurately pointed out, it happened under a completely different economic climate where you got a different education than they would give you if you went to college today. You learn different skills, uh, and you're gonna. What are you gonna do? You're gonna walk into a business and say, "Here's my resume. It includes nothing that has anything to do with what you guys do here." But I was on TV. Like, that's not going to help you. And I think he, he was right to think, hey, here's where I should be considering my options. And if you're a heavyweight, there are – people need heavyweights out there yeah. if you want to keep fighting. As far as what he's going to choose to do, I suspect that it might be hard to go out on this one. That's what I was going to say. As lifetime professional athlete Matt Mitrione, former NFL player, transitions to mixed martial arts, immediately comes into the UFC and becomes something of a deal, if not the biggest deal in the in the weight class uh, – I think going out on a fight where you feel like you only lost because of eye pokes would be a tough one. And I'm also going to say, if you're Bellator, I feel like Matt Mitrione is a guy you might want to have. Like, you don't necessarily want to break the bank to get him, but at the same time, he's clearly a smart guy. He's pretty good at talking. He's pretty good at selling the fight. And you could get him on a nice little win streak over there fighting your comparatively much shittier heavyweights. So, I don't know, man. I would probably at least make the guy what I thought was a more than fair offer. So it may well come down to whether or not the UFC wants to keep him and whether uh, Mitrione wants to, to soldier on. Fedor Emelianenko versus Matt Matrione. Oh, Ryzen New Year's Eve brother. 2016. Oh, hashtag Yeah, I thought so. All right, let's do just saying stuff, Ben, and then we will get out of here for this week. Ben, I've got an idea, a new idea for the FightPass.com. Oh, good. How about... A channel or a tab, whatever the kids are calling them these days on the digital streaming service. You've already confused me. Where TJ Dillashaw and Dominic Cruz are just on there always fighting. 24 <laughs> hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year. And I don't mean just a continuous replay of this fight. I mean these two dudes are actually out there always fighting. Because let's say you just got some time to kill. You're waiting for your mom to come pick you up after your piano lessons. You got 15 minutes. What do you do? FightPass.com, you watch three rounds of TJ Dillashaw and Dominic Cruz fighting, and then you go on about your business. So it's like kind of a live stream. You just pick it up wherever they happen to be. Yeah. I mean, they're just always fighting. It's always just going. Okay. Like, so, the, like those eagles in the nest. I just go, go yes, check, in, check exactly. in and see what they're up to. Exactly. It's just like a webcam of them always fighting. And then at night, we'll bring in blankets and pillows in the cage, and they can just sleep in their nope, own respective corners. They're corner. still fighting. They're always there <laughs> fighting. All the time. Well, I see a couple potential problems, but other than that, I I'm do, ready to green light this. I mean, whatever. I don't, we can talk about it, but I just don't see any problems. Just saying. Well, Chad, this week, I'm just saying we were just talking about Travis Brown, Travis Brown and Matt Mitrione and all the eye pokes and whatnot. I don't know if you saw it. I saw this video via uh, the Reddit MMA, uh, whereas Travis Brown and Matt Mitrione are standing there waiting for them to come back from commercial on Fox Sports 1 and have Bruce Buffer read the result of the fight. Mitrione is standing there with a giant ice pack over his mangled eye, uh, and there's that awkward period where we're all waiting for Bruce Buffer to get the signal to keep talking. Uh, and Travis Brown steps over to Matt Mitrione and says how he is really sorry about those eye pokes, man. Really did not mean to do that. He's totally sorry. Um, I'm just saying, I don't doubt that he didn't mean to do it and that he is very sorry. 
But if you're that sorry, how about give him some of your money? I'm just saying. Just saying. Nothing says I'm sorry like a bunch of money. Then Mitrione takes that money, gets himself a Fight Pass subscription, and he just watches TJ Dillashaw and Dominic Cruz always fighting. I feel like we've solved a lot of the world's problems here today. That's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We'll be back next week to look ahead to the next UFC event, which I believe is Cain Velasquez and Fabrizio Verdum. I think there's one before that on Fox before that. You're you're forgetting about Anthony Johnson and Ryan Bader and the big homies, Josh Barnett versus Ben Rothwell, the dark Lord. Okay. Yes. We will talk about that next week. Yes. As of right now though, we are done. We are through. We are out. It's like if I, when I was leaving here today, hit your car and then I was like, it's all busted up. I'm like, Hey man, I was really sorry. I didn't mean to. Anyway. Yeah, and then later my car slipped off both axles and like ground into the street. You would be like, I had nothing to do with what I had done earlier. Clearly, the, the two things were unrelated. Now I will simply move on with my heavyweight career. Just the way life.